This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Father Dan, how have you been? David, Heidi, always good to be with you. Things are good. We were just saying off air that spring is here, so the three of us are with our various uh, ailments. Thank God none of us COVID-19 at this point, but I, I, you mo- listeners might be able to hear a raspiness in my voice, and that is, is likely because of the spring seasonal allergies that are kicking in, and I am very grateful for that. So I'll take what I can. It's been, since our last episode, a busy time as it typically is, but it's getting busier as restrictions lift and travel increases. Whatever a new normal is, that's what I feel like I'm experiencing, and I'm grateful for it. So last week here at St. Mary's College and at the University of Notre Dame and at Holy Cross College, the tri-campus had its spring break. I happen to be traveling quite a bit for meetings, but also to deliver a William H. Shannon lecture at Nazareth College in Rochester, New York. Shout out to the folks, the great folks at Nazareth. They're wonderful. And a number of folks mentioned they listen to the podcast. So we appreciate that. As this episode drops, I will be on the campus of Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, just outside Boston, where I have the honor of delivering the St. Andre lecture this year. It's not too late if you're listening to this in the morning or afternoon. Come on down to campus. It's open to the public. You can find information online. And then with mixed emotion, I leave from Stonehill, Eastern Massachusetts, to Anaheim for the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. We were chatting and I've talked with others. Nobody really knows what to expect this year because it is a pandemic, the first version of this since the pandemic. It's hybrid, so there are some online uh, workshops that are available, but I feel very fortunate to have been invited to also give some in-person presentations. So if you're going to be there, say hi. Unfortunately, David and I are not going to be there for a Francis, I should say, and Heidi now. I'm so used to in the past, it was just me and David. Heidi and David and I won't be there uh, to do any live recordings of the podcast this year. So if that's something you're disappointed about, let us know. 
we always enjoy it, but it's good to hear what other folks think. And if you happen to be there in person, keep an eye out for that younger middle-aged man in a brown medieval habit. That will be me. And nice to say hi. Heidi, how are you doing? Sniveling and coughing over here. I had to mute myself because I was coughing through your comments, Dan. Pretty sure it's not COVID, just a run-of-the-mill cold that we haven't had for couple of years because I've been so masked, but I'm hanging in there and also excited. I got back from my work trip last week, got to go to Sacred Heart a University in Fairfield, Connecticut. Shout out to all the people at Sacred Heart. I had a great time there, did a really nice presentation with Kate McElwee from Women's Ordination Conference about synodality and women's ordination. And I wrote about that in my column last week, too, if people want to check that out. But I also spoke to students there, went to a couple classes, met with the president, had some meals with other theology faculty, really impressed with the work they're doing there. So, and I realized how much I miss getting out and interacting with other people besides just those in my own household here. So anyway, it's good to be back, excited about spring, getting ready to cook some corned beef and cabbage on Thursday. But how about you, David? How are you doing? Well, before we get there, I just want to circle back. The thing that you did at Fairfield College We'll post the link to your article about it on the show highlights, but I just wonder if you could give us sort of a top-level view of what that conversation was like. Yeah, it was really interesting. First of all, just the fact that a Catholic college, now uh, Sacred Heart has a level of independence that they're not connected to a religious order or even officially to a diocese, that they could host somebody who's going to talk about women's ordination now, right? So the so many years when this was off the table for discussion in official Catholic circles anyway. So Kate McElwee from Women's Ordination Conference talked a lot about how They saw the Synod as an opportunity. They were invited to the table. The Synod on Synodality has said that all voices are welcome and all issues can be discussed. And one of their materials is posted on the Synod website. So they were very hopeful, if not optimistic, and recognizing that it was unlikely something would come directly from the Synod in terms of a a real change in practice or teaching. And I talked a little bit about how the media covers the Synod and how for us too often it's about the decision makers at the top. And so since those aren't women or don't haven't included women in terms of voting members in the past, that we could do a better job covering that. Just a real interest in some of the people from the community, but even from some of the younger Catholic Studies students. So very encouraging. Well, and so for the past couple of weeks, I have continued my convalescence, and I just want to once again encourage anyone who is within the sound of my voice, if you are able to get the shingles vaccine, please get it. As soon as I am past this particular resurgence, I I start the clock again towards the eight weeks that needs to elapse before I can get the vaccine, and I'm so looking forward to that. Other news in the Dalt household, over the weekend, our daughter got her first cell phone, smartphone. So she is 12 years old, and this has been a discussion that we've been having for the better part of a year. I think that on the whole, it's going well in the 36 hours since it has been activated. I will say I'm very proud of how she has handled this. And one of the things that she said, we took a walk yesterday, and one of the things that she said to me was that this was not everything that she expected. And some of the ways that she's been thinking about it actually are very interesting to me because it's, in some ways, it's less than she expected. In some ways, it's more than she expected. And one of the things I'll be looking forward to when she gets home from school today is to find out how it went with her peers because she is one of the last in her class to get one of these devices. And so... 
as a person who does media for a living, it's a source of never-ending fascination to me, the ways in which we connect or don't connect with others. And so I'll be very interested in what that looks like as we move forward. David, I hope one parent to another, I hope you got the insurance. Oh. Uh, so my understanding is that, yes, we did. I was not involved in that particular part of the transaction. I will say that the route that we went with a company called Pinwheel, and what they do is they take phones that are real smartphones, but the operating system is slightly different from the Apple or Android operating system. There's more ability for parents to be involved in the sort of use of the phone without having to put a lot of restrictions on it. And so I'm very pleased so far with that. And I think our daughter is pleased too that as we're moving forward, she's not entirely off the reins yet. Now that of course is gonna change as she gets into her teenage years, but I feel like there's a really good basis now for negotiation moving forward. It's a big decision. Yeah. My son just left his brand new phone on the bus last Friday. <laughs> oh, I'm so but, sorry. But he did find it. It was there in the afternoon, but yeah, that insurance probably good for the youngins. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Big step. We'll see. So on the show today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be looking at COVID two years in, and we're going to be looking at the recent wave of anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ legislation that has been happening in many states across the nation. And we'll be looking at the complex issues of nuclear disarmament around the invasion of Ukraine. So all of that is coming up here on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with Dan Haran and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In 1991, the Cold War ended with the fall of the Soviet Union. And in the wake of that change, many countries that had been absorbed into the USSR after World War II became their own nations again nearly overnight. For Ukraine, that meant that it became a nation with the third largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world. During the Cold War, Ukraine had been a front line in the doctrine of both offense and defense practiced by both the East and the West. The doctrine, known as, quote, mutually assured destruction, end quote, or MAD, held that the way to peace was to have so much nuclear firepower on both sides that it would be irrational to ever use them. But with the breakup of the USSR, all of those political balances changed. Ukraine faced a stark choice to remain a nuclear superpower or to go to the way of nuclear disarmament. They chose disarmament, and in 1994, they entered into an agreement with the United States, Great Britain, and Russia. The governing document of that agreement, known as the Budapest Memorandum, promised robust protection in exchange for Ukraine surrendering all of its nuclear capability. Now, three decades later, the Budapest Memorandum is being put to the test. One of the signatories, Russia, is now entering its fourth week of an invasion in Ukraine. 
So far, the United States and Britain have pursued the route of economic sanctions, but it remains to be seen what other robust protections might be available to Ukraine. David, one of the subjects you study closely is nuclear security. Did Ukraine make the right choice in 1994, or would it be better off now if it had kept its nuclear capability? I think that is the question. And one of the things that we see, those that look at international security issues, particularly around nuclear weapons, is that oftentimes the the conversation gets very simplified. Oh, this would have been so much simpler if Ukraine had simply kept all of its nuclear weapons and then it would have had a deterrent and no one would have dared to invade it. Well, part of the balances that you have to keep in mind is that to maintain a nuclear stockpile is a kind of investment on a national scale that most people can't fathom because nuclear weapons themselves are boutique instruments. And by that, I mean that you don't have a sort of way of maintaining a nuclear stockpile that's simply a matter of, do we have enough of this? Do we have enough of that? There's an entire culture that goes into this and it it requires you basically taking a a major portion of your economy and redirecting it to the maintenance of these weapons. America has for now almost 70 years directed a major part of its economy towards the maintenance of these weapons, and it's not able to do it with great success. And we can talk more about that, just how difficult it is to maintain a nuclear stockpile. It bankrupted the Soviet Union in many ways. And so Ukraine, I think, made a good decision for a number of reasons in getting rid of these weapons back in 1994. Nevertheless, I think that it is very much uh, a question for other states that are considering whether or not to enter into the nuclear deterrence arena or to give up nuclear deterrence. They're watching this very closely, and that, I think, should be a major concern to everyone involved here, because this is not just about Russia and Ukraine. It's other states watching who may be on the verge of attaining nuclear weapons or who may have recently attained nuclear weapons and are trying to be convinced to give them up, or I should say nuclear capability, and are trying to give them up. I mean, it's very difficult to convince nations to give them up when that simplified narrative is the ruling narrative. It's interesting that this was a preoccupation in the 80s and 90s, of course, in in the United States among our, our bishops, the USCCB. And it has really probably, I would imagine, historically because of the the fall of the Soviet Union in 91, that this kind of fell off the radar, pun intended, of many of our, our church leaders, with a notable exception in recent weeks of Archbishop John Wester of the Diocese of Santa Fe, who I think very presciently and wisely brings up this topic from a moral perspective and says, look, this hasn't changed. The church's teaching stands on this. In addition to simply the financial and strategic drain that, David, you talked about that that raises also, I would say, ethical questions about budgets and military budgets and spending for populations, the balance of defense, the Catholic teaching when it comes to analysis around whether a war can be constituted as just or not focuses very heavily on the question of proportionality. And it's very difficult to consider any instance in which uh, a nuclear weapon would be considered proportionate. So, but there's all of that from a, from an ethical perspective. I, I will say this may seem like a bit of a tangent, but you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who thought I was nuts in light of the the preoccupation that I, like most of the world, have over the last 19 days in, in following very closely the tragedy of the invasion in, in Ukraine and the suffering and the, that's taking place. But I found myself re-watching HBO's miniseries Chernobyl last week. The reason my friend was teasing me about this was because a lot of people are just overwhelmed and don't even want to think about 
a lot of what's going on there. And I understand that impulse. Uh, I think part of my personality is I tend to lean into it. I, t- I tend to dive in more deeply. Maybe that's the, the journalist in me or the scholar in me that I'm drawn to that. I have long been fascinated by the story of Chernobyl, in part because I was just a little kid when it happened. I think something on that magnitude that happened in my lifetime and many of our listeners' lifetimes, life, lives, times, life, life. <laughs> Anyways, I bring that up because this, I, I think that there is there are a few things. And, frank, and frankly, I can't think of anything more scary than an atomic weapon or a nuclear meltdown. And this is at, at a reactor. This is not this wasn't intended to be weaponized to think about deliberately launching that kind of violence indiscriminately, because that's the only way that kind of weapon is used is horrifying. So I, I just think that it's worth us in the 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union to be reminded of how serious this is. And David, I think you bring up a good point about recognizing the number of these weapons that exist, but also two other points. One is the cost, as you say. The second thing is, how do you keep track of these kinds of weapons? And then I think the Chernobyl disaster is a great illustration. Of course, Chernobyl is just north of Kiev in, in Ukraine and on the border with Belarus. Chernobyl is a great example of the fact that even if you, with best intentions, terrible things can go awry in a non-military uh, context. And so it's just horrifying all around. Just one quick note is that under the regularized sort of rules of engagement, both in terms of NATO, but also in terms of what Russia understands as legitimate warfare, attacking things like dams and nuclear reactors are supposed to be off limits under the rules of engagement. And so Russia is not playing by its own rules at this moment with some of the attacks that it's made in the last two weeks on some of these facilities. Yes. And of course, it's the fact that Russia also has nuclear capability and nuclear weapons that makes this war so scary for the rest of the world, not to mention for the people of Ukraine. So it's challenging for pacifists and those who are very limited in how they might see what a just war is. Certainly, this is an unprovoked invasion by another power and many of the things that we're seeing that the Russians are doing in this war the bombing of civilians, like you said, the bombing of other targets that are supposed to be off limits, the recent news about the bombing of the maternity hospital. I mean, it's and the encroachment and the getting closer and closer to the line of the border with Poland, where then the U.S. may be forced to step in in a way that they won't right now because of the, the lack of NATO membership. I, too, have been following this very closely. Every morning I get up and read about what happened over over our night and uh, in Ukraine, and it's devastating. And I'm very concerned about the issue of nuclear weapons that, that Russia has. You brought up the mention of the bishops who used to be very strong on this, the peace pastoral of the 80s. I'm old enough to remember those things. There certainly have been everyday Catholics, if not bishops, who have been talking about this in the intervening decades. I'm thinking of the plowshares protesters who have, you know, done uh, civil disobedience, going to nuclear weapon sites and trying to uh, to say, no, we can't have these. We can't have the possibility of the use of these or of accidents. It, it's really challenging. And I'm, sometimes I'm not sure what to think. And I could use some guidance from my religious leaders in these times. Well, let me ask a question of both of you, because the one of the narratives that comes up in all of this, and, and let me put all my cards on the table. For 15 years, I was a member of the Religious Society of Friends. I was a Quaker, which means that I was an absolute pacifist. I was a radical pacifist as part of that tradition. 
since I have stepped away from my involvement with the Quakers, I no longer consider myself to be that kind of pacifist. But I nevertheless see pacifism as one of the guiding sort of lights of my approach to trying to be a Christian. What comes up at moments like this is, well, if we listen to you peaceniks, then all that's going to happen is that the bullies are going to come in and they're going to take all of our stuff. And don't you see that happening in Ukraine? So it's good that we have these weapons because it makes sure that nobody ever comes knocking on our door. And that's an oversimplified characterization. I hope it's not a caricature. But I wonder, you know, since Catholics are not radical pacifists the way that Quakers are, how should we be responding to those maybe from within our own house who are saying, no, 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 Jesus threw over the tables of the money changers. Sometimes you got to get nasty with these folks. What do we say to that? Well, just one caveat. I think not all Catholics are radical pacifists, but some are. I think that's really important to note. I think of somebody like a Servant of God, Dorothy Day, the now very recently late Jim Forrest and others in the Catholic peace peacemaker sort of movement and anti-war movement, nonviolence movement. So I, I, it's important to note that you can be Catholic and an absolute pacifist. The greatest, I would say, pacifist of all time was a little person named Jesus of Nazareth. And so I think the Gospels make very clear, as our Quaker friends and Mennonite friends and many Catholics and and others of other Christian communities would maintain, you know, Jesus sets the bar for us. And so if we're daring to call ourselves Christians and walk in the footprints of the Lord, then that's a big challenge we have to face. There is, of course... I was when I was in doctoral studies, I was a teaching assistant for the great ethicist and political theorist David Hollenbach. And it was a fascinating course that I TA'd before him. And David was one of the the major figures behind these peace pastorals of the 70s and 80s, a brilliant thinker on these points. And it's just interesting to look at the different kind of stances and to see his students really grapple with some of these questions and balancing realism versus idealism versus the kind of ideological interests of Christianity around pacifism or nonviolence. To your point, David, when do you have to be what is a defensive policing move or, or a defensive military action versus all the other possibilities? It's fascinating, but I think one of the things that I, I keep thinking about is this exact question. The world is watching Ukraine. We have certain rules that have been established through NATO and the European Union and the transatlantic alliances that, are, that have been followed so far. There have been times where we have seen the good and the bad in the kind of pendulum swing. So one of the things that comes to the surface when we think of examples in the last 20, 30 years is Bosnia-Kosovo and the Serbian genocide that was taking place and not far from Ukraine, frankly, in the Baltic Sea. You see that in the 90s, and then you see the kind of reaction um, that people had between that military intervention for the sake of quelling genocide and violence. And you see what happened in Rwanda and the world resistance and stepping in. We see as well, and we talked about this last time in the last episode, how Putin has used the United States' own actions in 2003 to unjustly and unlawfully invade the sovereign nation of Iraq, which I think everybody, regardless of political position, is in agreement that was a terrible mistake, though, you know, at the time, there were arguments that were being made and people supported it. This is a really difficult thing. I will say, David, I'm more and more on the strict pacifist side of the Catholic equation. Famously, people will, in, in the argument for self-defense, even to use violence and self-defense, will point to Thomas Aquinas, who does say that a fundamental good is the preservation of one's life. And so if you're going to defend yourself and, and have to use some violence, then that would be justified in certain circumstances. 
a much older and I would say more deeply Christian tradition goes back to St. Augustine, that great doctor of the church who said, actually, no, if you think about it in the kind of eschatological and cosmic sort of perspective, if you're going to kill somebody else to save yourself, that's a pretty major transgression against God's command. And so it's better for you. You know, he doesn't say it's not passivity, but nonviolence means you're not going to use violence against violence. You can use other strategies. I, I, I love that idea. I'm drawn to that a lot, but I, it's hard to watch what's going on in Ukraine and to stand by that. I mean, Heidi, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's very hard to apply that in a situation like this when you have an aggressor in Russia. And what does that mean for the people of Ukraine to just leave, to lay down? And the concern that it's, it starts with Ukraine and that this would then just be something that would move even further into other European countries. I think we're also seeing some of the what's the best way to strategize about this, a discussion about that in the way that people are looking at how Pope Francis has responded. So we had an editorial at NCR last week that really encouraged the Pope to be a little stronger in his condemnation. Now, even in just the last day or two, it does seem like he stepped up his rhetoric a little bit, but he was pretty careful in the beginning. And I think the idea was to not come out so stridently as to dispel the possibility that somehow the Vatican could maybe be helpful in some negotiating some sort of peace, either now or in the future. And I understand that, and I'm not aware. Obviously, we acknowledged in the editorial that we're not aware or privy to all of what might be going on behind the scenes. But it does seem that part of our responsibility as Christian people, too, is to call out evil and violence when we see it. And I think, again, these are tough questions. I tend to be a pacifist, too. I tend to be an idealist, but it's pretty hard to watch those um, pictures. And I felt the same way about Syria. So I, I know for some people, this is they're responding in a certain way because this is Europe and it has memories for them of previous wars. But I felt the same way when we were looking at other parts of the world, too. I'll just say, too, less from the kind of moral analysis and, and more of a geopolitical assessment. It's interesting, both scary and potentially optimistic or, or gives me some hope that in the last 24 hours as of our recording of this, intelligence reports have shown that Russia has been pressuring China for support, both financially, militarily, and even personnel-wise, including, you mentioned Syria. Russia was a big backer of the autocrat and dictator in Syria. And so now they're calling their, their the quid pro quo into effect and asking for folks to come and fight on behalf of Russia in Ukraine. On the one hand, what, what I see as optimistic here is that the, the Ukrainian people have really risen to, to the challenge in a way that has totally torpedoed Vladimir Putin's assumptions about their just his projection of their sort of Russophile, Russophile sort of intentions and not appreciating their own commitment to their nation and nation state and identity, but also underestimate just their resolve and their capacity. And I think the leadership of President Zelensky is a great example of that. The worrying thing for me is if China gets involved, this is, as far as I can tell, this is World War III. I mean, if China gets involved, you have the second largest economy in the world quickly approaching the number one economy in the world that's also a nuclear power. In, in, it's just very frightening to think about that. I think the best case scenario is that, that China plays Switzerland and says, I don't, we don't want anything to do with this. We're not going to approve sanctions against you, but we're not going to get involved personally. I think that pushes Putin and those around him to make some very hard choices about at what point, as some New York Times columnists, I think, have smartly pointed out, 
Putin will lose this. The question is how many people have to die and, and how big is he going to have to lose? My fear is that he's so deranged and so isolated that he doesn't realize he's losing. He doesn't know that's the only option he has. I'm very afraid of, of China getting involved in tipping the scales. And that that invokes, I mean, I, I can't see how that doesn't begin to threaten the NATO states and brings us into this as well. Do you two have thoughts about this in light of the recent news? I'll just say, to add another wrinkle to this, I think when a lot of people think about nuclear weapons, we tend to think about the last time that they were used in warfare, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those were, in many ways, brute force weapons, meaning that when they were dropped, no one quite knew what the yield of each was going to be. What you need to understand is the progress of nuclear technology from then to now is we're now at the point where every weapon in the American arsenal, and I believe most of the weapons in the Russian arsenal, are what we call dial-a-yield weapons, which means that it is possible for someone who is deploying the weapons to say, I would like this to be 10 kilotons or 150 kilotons, and the same the same object that is blowing up has that kind of capacity. Now, in some ways, that's a good thing because the weapons are smaller overall than they were at the height of the Cold War in terms of we don't really have megaton weapons in the arsenal anymore. The downside of that is that it becomes much more possible to think about these as tactical weapons to be deployed in theaters of warfare And it is possible to think, well, this has a much more limited yield and therefore I can use it. And I want to make sure that everybody understands who's listening that the people who are making these decisions are not thinking about this in terms of mass effect. They're thinking about this in terms of surgical effect oftentimes. And we can just go back to the Trump administration and their refurbishment of a certain class of weapons. All of that was driven by a kind of surgical tactical mindset, the notion that we could deploy these then on the front line and that we could use them in Europe and it wouldn't be as damaging. And so it's it to me, it's an insane mindset. But listeners need to understand that leaders are not thinking about this in terms of wiping cities off the map. They're thinking in terms of, well, I could use this weapon in a limited theater and it wouldn't be as bad as some people think that it is. And that's terrifying to me. Yeah, as well as the use of chemical re- weapons, too, which is being There's conversation about that now because of Russia accusing Ukraine of creating chemical weapons. And and many people say the way to analyze that is that means that's what they're thinking about coming next. I think we can all agree that there's we're going to be talking about this for a while. And it's very difficult conversations. We need to rely on our faith for helping us thinking about how to understand that. But we'll wrap this up for now and probably be returning to it in the future. This is The Francis Effect. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Two episodes back, Father Brian Massingale joined us to speak about the growing trend across the United States to pass legislation to ban books in schools that, Repub- that Republican lawmakers found objectionable. At first, the primary targets were texts that... 
At first, the primary targets were texts that addressed the reality and complexity of racism and white privilege, as well as the true and painful history of chattel slavery and discrimination in this country. But as we discussed in that episode of the podcast, Republican-controlled state legislatures had also begun targeting the LGBTQ community. Like the racially motivated book banning, this trend has included the removal of books in school libraries that merely acknowledge the existence of queer sexual and gender identities. At present, there are at least 15 proposals in nine states that seek to censor educators from acknowledging the reality of LGBTQ people and identity in the classroom. The most well-known case is currently the parental rights in education law in Florida, better known as the Don't Say Gay Law. According to a Reuters report, this law would, quote, prohibit classroom discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity for many young students, rejecting criticism and student protests that characterize the measure as discriminatory and misguided, unquote. Republicans, including Governor Ron DeSantis, claim that this law gives parents more control of students' education. However, quote, Democrats say such policies will harm the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community. The Florida measure bars classroom instruction in public schools on sexual orientation or gender identity for children in kindergarten through third grade or from ages five to nine, unquote. Whereas the banning of books on the basis of race in this country is motivated by and designed to protect the white comfort and sense of supremacy, this trend in anti-LGBTQ legislation seems poised to protect heterosexual normativity at the expense of LGBTQ dignity and safety. Legislative proposals in other states are set to impose even greater restrictions on even acknowledging the existence of homosexuality or gender diverse homosexuality, or diversity of gender identity. Dan, what do you think about this Florida law and others like it? Why is this something American Catholics should be concerned about? I'll tell you what I think about it. I think it's evil. I mean, it's there's no other way to put it. It's terrible. It's dangerous. I think Catholics should be concerned about it for several reasons. The first is it's deeply anti-life. It's anti-life because it helps create conditions that increase danger and violence for an already minoritized and marginalized set of peoples. And as the Second Vatican Council makes clear in Gaudium et Spes, the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the people of God are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the people of the world are those of the people of God or the church. And so this falls into the griefs and anxieties category. LGBTQ folks and queer children in particular are vulnerable. It's a vulnerable population because of even pre-legislative cultural, social, ecclesial biases and and forms of discrimination or or quote-unquote justifications for discrimination. It's anti-life and dangerous for several reasons. I'll name just three. First, the data is absolutely clear scientifically in terms of social science about the disproportionately, absolutely high disproportionate percentage of LGBTQ folks who experience suicidal ideation, who uh, attempt taking their own life, or who commit some form of self-harm. So this is already a vulnerable population from a mental health standpoint, not because there's anything related to mental illness if you're gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or non-binary. There's nothing wrong with you in that regard. But because of the social stigma, because of the unjust pressures in our culture and in our institutions, and now in our legislation and school systems in many states around the country, this increases mental health challenges and may lead to to violence, self-violence in this case. The sexual, second thing is if you're not going to 
you know, I, I want to bracket for a moment part of what Governor DeSantis and these bigoted lawmakers are, are arguing. They're the, the lead as they want to present it is that they're dealing with kindergarten through third grade as if there are robust curricula for sexual education at this level, as if to, the, the implication being that somehow the school system in Florida is promoting sexual activity among minors. This is bizarre. It's just it's not real. That's not the issue at hand. The issue is one silencing and erasure, a stigmatizing of uh, a minority population is being protected and promoted, a minority population that is discriminated against because of their sexual or gender identity. And this leads to without appropriate, you know, both education when we talk about sexual education or cultural education and and teachers, school counselors, administrators who signal they, they are safe dialogue partners, they're safe resources for children, this could lead to down the road or perhaps even in, in childhood, an increased likelihood of sexual or intimacy violence, right? If you don't know, if you're not allowed to talk about these things, how are you going to get the, the help and support that you need as an individual, including children who are at times victims of sexual abuse, tragically, horrifically, sexual assault, violence, and the rest? Imagine if it's against the law to acknowledge the reality of homosexuality or bisexuality or transgender or non-binary gender identities, and you are being abused by somebody of the same gender or sex. And are you afraid to talk to counselors and to teachers and to people who should be there to help and protect you? I don't think people are thinking through all the ramifications of violence that this entails. Finally, I think it's used then to justify a culture of bullying and discrimination, which is already instantiated in our school systems. Just one last note, there are other states, as of now, 19 states with 15 proposals among them that, that have similar sort of legislation on the table to what is passed in Florida. And, and some of them are much more explicit about you can't even acknowledge the reality of gay and lesbian people. I mean, this is just so absurd. It reminds me of another country that apparently these Republican legislators want the United States to become, and that is the Islamic Republic of Iran. So the the leader in Iran for a long time said that we don't have gay people in this country. It's not real. It doesn't exist. So I don't know. Maybe these Republicans, many of whom coincidentally also are championing dictators and, and violent autocrats like of Vladimir Putin, who also has a big problem with LGBTQ people. I think maybe they want the United States to be more like Russia or Iran. I don't know. What do you two think? Yeah, I thought you were going to say Russia when you first said Iran, because obviously we had the we had Kirill's comments just recently about the whole war being about the issue of LGBT uh, gay pride parades or something off the rails that he said. Yeah, I think this is so obvious what it is. It's this last gasp of the culture war around this issue and the extremeness and craziness of some of these bills just indicate that they've lost that war. And so there's this grasp to try to see if there's any way we can put the toothpaste back in the tube. And it's very real for the people who are, like you said, their very lives are threatened or their safety. I'm not surprised given what's also happening in our church around transgender issues. So we have a number and an increasing number of dioceses or school systems, Catholic school systems that are coming out with these like draconian rules around transgender people. The idea that they couldn't receive the sacraments or they can't be admitted to Catholic schools or they can't be referred to by their pronouns that they asked to be used. I mean, I just think we're seeing this 
fighting back on the part of anti-LGBT folks. And it's just, I, I believe that the good will win out on, on this culture war, like, like it has been going that direction in the past decades anyway. But it's really painful. And I think it's really indicative of how they're losing the war, that they need to come out with these really extreme measures in legislatures and in the church. Well, and I just want to take this and, and bring it down to a personal level. So my mother in her last years of life identified as a lesbian and was in a, a same-sex relationship. And I've got a, a close family member. And for re, for many reasons, I'll, I'll leave that just kind of open. But I've got a close family member who is currently undergoing transition. And so those pieces make it so that you know, when I hear about legislation and some of the legislation that has been talked about is it's off the charts in terms of there are, there are certain legislation that if it goes through, a, a person could be jailed for giving assistance. A parent could be jailed for supporting their child in gender reassignment or in using hormone blockers or those sorts of things. It's being redefined as child abuse in some states. And in the show notes, we'll put a tracker that is put together by the Freedom for All Americans organization that is, is listing each of these pieces of legislation in their detail. Because in one sense, to talk about it even with a broad brush, to say it's anti-LGBTQ legislation, I think that 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 misses something because it's targeted legislation at gay and lesbian identity. Absolutely. It's also specifically targeted legislation, as you were saying, Heidi, at transgender identity. And while those issues overlap, there are also some particularities there that need to be named. It's not simply lesbian and gay and bisexual liberation that we're pushing for here, but also for the dignity of those who, who are transgender. And we've talked about that many times here on the show before. They're overlapping issues, but they're also distinct issues. And though, But the attack is coming on all sides at this particular moment, and Catholics need to be concerned about that, I think. Well, and to be held at, you know, at the whim of state legislators on the one hand, but also state judges and, and Supreme Courts of various states. So probably the most egregious anti-trans legislation has been passed in the state of Texas in, in recent weeks. And over the weekend, there was a, a, a notice that a, a court had at least temporarily stalled that implementation. And David, I think you, you named something really important, which is the broadness with which a lot of these statutes are being drafted so that they actually in practice are hard to enforce, though it would be up to regional district attorneys or ADs in different places to to invest their time and energy to, to pursue this. So on the one hand, they don't pose like a kind of Gestapo sort of mentality. I don't think police are going to be knocking down the doors of family members of trans folks or, or even healthcare providers. But instead, what this is doing is seeking, like in the book banning that we talked about earlier in the previous episode, like the anti-CRT kind of boogeyman accusations and so forth, what I see here is the self-censorship, right? So that teachers, that others, not only do they not offer healthy, robust, true-to-life curricula, but if, let's say, a student comes to them and has questions, a question about maybe a friend's parents who are same in a same-sex couple or uh, a kid whose sibling is gay or lesbian or non-binary or trans, a, a teacher might be afraid to even engage in the conversation for fear of being attacked or fired or somehow put in a vulnerable position because of this legislation. So it's got a chilling effect that is, I think, dangerous in its own right. And I recognize that 
we are speaking to a wide variety of listeners. And so I, I want to say uh, something to those who might consider themselves to be side B or who might be, you know, they affirm the existence of gay and lesbian persons, but not in, in their, the full flourishing of their love for one another. Or they may assume, they may affirm the, even the full flourishing of love of LGB persons, but they think that transgenderism is some kind of movement against the essence that God has put into each human being as male and female. I just want to speak to those listeners for a moment. This is a Matthew 25 issue, that when Jesus said that Jesus would be showing up, the place that Jesus said that Jesus would most assuredly show up is in the vulnerable, those that society says you don't belong. And at that particular time, the categories that Jesus gave was the sick and those that were in prison and those kinds of categories. But we can easily look now and we can ask who are the unwanted in our communities right now. And we can find that in state after state, it's LGBTQ persons. And so if you want to be with Jesus, it's real simple. You go and you stand in solidarity with those people. Matthew 25 makes that abundantly clear. You know, at the risk of self-reference, I wrote a book on theological anthropology about how we, through orthodox, authentic, Catholic, traditional resources and theology, can understand the human person that accommodates transgender identity and non-binary identities and in the broader spectrum of, of sexual and, and gender identities. This does not have to be antithetical. So I think that's also important, that there are ways of being authentically Catholic and orthodox in our theology and not be anti-life and violent like this. In addition to, David, your excellent point about, hello, this is what the gospel calls us to. Well, I appreciate your pointing out, too, that there are some distinctions between transgender issues and LGBT, LGB other issues. But I have to say that for younger people, these are very important issues and they go together. And my concern is that if we don't have the church um, supporting people in this Matthew 25 way that we believe Jesus calls us to do, and instead they're continually identified with the other side, this is not sending the message we want to send to young Catholic Christians that, that the church is a place for them where they can seek justice and live out a life of hospitality as Jesus calls us to. So I, I was happy to see a number of theologians and other faculty at St. Louis University, which is a Catholic university, putting together a letter to legislators in the state of Missouri around the anti, anti-CRT legislation that's being proposed there. So there are people in our church speaking up against these kinds of very draconian proposed legislation, but too often I think our church is aligned with the, aligned with the other side, and that's a problem. Yeah, again, self-referentially, I mean, my column last week picks up exactly on Heidi's point about young people today. And I, I closed that column with, again, it doesn't get much more orthodox and traditional than to quote the rule of St. Benedict, who makes very clear that we need to listen to the younger members of our community, because as Benedict says, oftentimes God puts the truer word and wisdom in their experience and in their perspective. And so I think, I, I believe wholeheartedly, this is not just young people who are dilettantes or moving from one fad to another. These young folks are very sharp, very wise, very caring, and I think uh, compassionate and spiritual people. And the reason they don't show up at our churches or in many of our institutions is because we're a bunch of hypocrites and they have no time or patience for that when 
matters as urgent as global climate change, as urgent as the violence we're experiencing in the world, as urgent as things like the lack of gun control in this country and these anti-LGBTQ laws are passed. They, they want to get to work. They want to do what's right. We have a lot to learn from them, including uh, our church leaders. And so I, sadly, again, it doesn't look like we're going to be talking about this for the last time this week. As things continue to develop, we'll circle back as always. Stay with us. We've got one more segment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlum. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Two years ago, after the World Health Organization identified the coronavirus as a pandemic, much of the country went on lockdown, including Catholic churches. Today, those churches are back open. Mask mandates are generally over, and dispensations to miss mass have been lifted. But have people come back? Experts interviewed for a National Catholic Reporter article published last week estimate that mass attendance is 60 to 70 percent of what it was in early 2020. Although polling early in the pandemic indicated that some Americans were more likely to say the crisis strengthened their faith rather than weaken it. Other data in, t in spring 2020 showed that one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. While that research came from an evangelical Protestant research group, NCR's reporting found that the impact from the pandemic on Catholic churches has been a mixed bag, including its financial impact. While mass attendance is down, many Catholics continued to financially support parishes even when they weren't attending in person, especially through online giving. Also, larger gifts from wealthy donors helped make up for a decline in regular offertory giving. Some parishes and dioceses reported being on solid financial footing in 2022, but the overall picture is that giving had gone down across the country. In addition, several dioceses have closed Catholic schools, and at least four dioceses have filed for bankruptcy during the pandemic, in part due to the clergy sex abuse survivors' lawsuits. Of course, these changes are happening in the context of a longer trend of decline in church attendance and affiliation that started long before the pandemic. In the U.S., churches have seen a steady decline in membership in the past 20 years. In 2020, church membership in the U.S. dropped below 50% for the first time since the Gallup poll started tracking it in 1937. Heidi, what's your analysis of all this data, and what do you think it means for the future of the church? Well, I have to say, when our reporter Brian Fraga did this piece to coincide with the two-year marking of the pandemic, I was somewhat surprised that the news was not even more bleak. So the financial news that in a number of parishes and some dioceses, people did step up with online giving, or you had donors who were willing and financially capable of stepping in and saying, we can help you out during these tough times. In addition, of course, some church entities did uh, benefit from some of the government funding that helped out people during the pandemic. That said, it's the poorer parishes and the poorer dioceses where this is really like accelerated what was already a problem, and that is the financial um, inability to sustain the amount of institutional, whether it's parishes, schools, and other entities. And so there was already financial challenges before the pandemic, and it seems like the pandemic 
really just lit a fire under that and, and accelerated some of that decline. So in a way, the financial news was less bleak than maybe I had even anticipated. On the other hand, that stat that was tucked in the story about the 60 to 70 percent of folks returning to church, it does seem like only just recently we're having the mask mandates lifted. But the truth is that it's been almost a year since the church has reopened. And so it does seem that for a good number of people, we're talking about a third of folks that were attending mass before the pandemic, regular church attendance is something that that they're just not picking up yet again after a return to whatever we're going to call normal uh, once we think of ourselves as through this. And I see that in my own experiences with folks. You can hear this cold that I'm having today. I was sick yesterday. The rest of my family went off to Mass, but I stayed home and watched it on video. And I, I thought, this is a nice option for when you're sick. Normally, I would have just missed Mass. But I do think it's just been a lot easier for people to stay away. Or sadly, they stayed away during the pandemic and they found reasons not to go back. Maybe nobody from their parish checked in with them, asked them how they were doing, offered them any support during the pandemic. Maybe all they did was just continue to send the envelopes. Or maybe they were turned off by some of the ideological stances taken by some Catholics during those years, especially the year of 2020 when we had the presidential election and all this Catholic support for Donald Trump. I think all in all, it's concerning because, again, it just seems to have accelerated the trend on the attendance side as well with the continuing lack of attendance, church membership, and affiliation with institutions that we're just going to have to deal with in the present and in the future. Heidi, you are really speaking to my condition, as my old Quaker friends used to say, because, yeah, those envelopes came with regularity, but very little contact from the church at all, from the parish these past couple of years about how we were weathering the storm. And that raises for me an issue that I see sometimes put forth on social media, because when people start to raise these kinds of issues, some of the responses that they get from the more traditionalist side of thinking and identity is, well, but missing mass is a mortal sin. And so there's kind of a lump it or leave it approach like, well, it doesn't matter what your hesitations are. It doesn't matter, you know, how the parish acted. Now that it is possible to go back, you have to go back with no discussion. I'd be interested in y'all's takes on that because me, I find that approach makes me want to go back even less. I think you're in good company, David. I mean, I think the data that Brian's article contains and, and that Heidi was addressing a moment ago I think it's been affirmed by my anecdotal experience, having been back on the road more than I have in the last really two years, including being a guest presider and preacher at different parishes and different campus ministries. I, I think the 60 to 70 percent is, is is spot on, you know, almost to a, to a person. It's hard to say, though, because it's interesting that the primary foci of this data set is financial and attendance-based. But there isn't as much in terms of unpacking or doing like exit interviews of the people who are in that 30 to 40% who have not returned. And I can only speak again anecdotally. I know people who were regular mass goers beforehand who have not come back. Part of it has been some found communities online that were incredibly 
robust and engaging and equitable in the sense of who was involved. It felt like a much more community-based experience of worship. It wasn't just falling into the passivity of a father or deacon is up there preaching and presiding and I'm just zoning in and out. And so counterintuitively, I think some folks were at home on Zoom or on streaming and felt more engaged than they would if they were in person in the pre-pandemic liturgical context. I also think, Heidi, to your point about the way in which church leaders, rightly or wrongly, have been perceived in part due to their own sort of alignment with political ideology, particularly that of the far right, as we were talking about in the previous segment, anti-LGBTQ folks, those who are exceptionally critical to the verge of overtly racist in their resistance to movements for racial justice. I think that a lot of people are fed up and I don't blame them. Yeah, it's tough to think about. But I will say I the other concern that I have, David, you mentioned this idea of people for whom mass attendance or missing mass is a mortal sin. My concern is that those are the folks most likely to come back, right? So they came back first. They're more likely to come back. They're less likely to find alternative communities online. And so then when you do return to a parish, who's there? It's either more conservative or what I've noticed, just more elderly. And shout out to boomer Catholics. They're great. But it's it can be very disconcerting for a younger person in their 20s or 30s to walk into a parish on Sunday and literally see nobody like them. And the number of young families, I think that there's been some decrease there too. I mean, getting young children and a whole family to Mass has, is a challenge even in good times. And to have had a break from that or to either be watching virtually or to have others, your spiritual you know, practices take another form, I, I can see why people are maybe not rushing back. And, and maybe it'll turn out to be a good thing, Dan. I'm hopeful if people found more equitable communities or other ways of experiencing their spirituality, that maybe that's something that could flourish or inform where a church goes forward. But it is concerning to me, too, because some of us have been talking about this trend for decades, and, and it just keeps seem to get, be getting more and more serious. And coronavirus didn't cause it or begin it, but I think it, it, it accelerated it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's very interesting. And, and I think one of the things that you're observing that's got me thinking about this from another perspective is the question that gets asked. I think a lot of church leaders who are of an older generation are asking the wrong question. This is something I've talked a lot about in, in public lectures and in writing to some degree, and I'm not alone. There are people who are experts in young adult ministry and youth ministry and campus ministry who've been saying this for a long time, which is, I think, the standard wisdom among the kind of ruling generation of church leaders, and that would include a lot of the church goers, as you were naming there, Heidi, the older crowd, as it were. They see the lack of youth, young adults and young families, and they say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with this generation? What do we need to do to get them to come in? And over the decades, we've seen all kinds of craziness from, oh, maybe if we have a coffee bar in the lobby to they want mass at nine o'clock on a Sunday night. So some poor middle-aged priest has to stay up way past his bedtime or whatever. And it just does. It almost never works. Music, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't. That's not the point because they're asking, in my estimation, the wrong question. The question is, what can we learn from these young adults and what are we doing wrong? I think that lack of self-criticality is a major obstacle. And here's where I see the trend is actually optimistic. And, and again, I, I hate to make reference to my last column, but I, I am genuinely hopeful 
especially now that I'm back on the road and, and on all these college campuses and as mask mandates are lifted and, and gathering is more regular, even on my own college campus here in, in the tri-campus area in South Bend, this young generation, the college age and high school age generation is very inspiring to me because they crave an authenticity and they crave uh, sincerity and truth and humanity and all of its brokenness, but in its truthfulness that has not been the, the practice of church leaders and of the church as institution for a long time. If it were, then we wouldn't have had the spotlight article. We would have been addressing very really going back to the 1940s and 50s, all of this cover up that has ended up you know, being uncovered. What I find optimistic is that if we were actually able to take what the young adults said back in 2018, when Pope Francis also had the intuition, let's listen to young adults on their own terms and not let it be sifted through the filter of, you know, septa and octogenarian bishops at the synod and just let the young people write the documents as they did in a kind of very powerful document in May of, of 2018. I think actually the church could be filled with young adults, the slightly older generation of millennials or even younger Gen Xers who want a faith community, who want a social community, who want a human community of people committed to the gospel. I mean, frankly, I'm, I don't blame young adults who on a Sunday morning are more drawn to go and gather with Black Lives Matter protesters than to gather for the celebration of mass. I'm not saying that one is better than another, but it makes sense to me when they look at who is actually living the gospel, or to David, your point in the last segment, who's, who is responding to Jesus's you know, challenge and instruction in Matthew 25, doing what they're actually called to by the Spirit. I think we could do a lot to be more authentic bearers and proclaimers of the gospel. And frankly, until we as the church leaders, I'll speak as a Catholic priest myself and as a professor and a theologian, we need to listen to learn and to change. As I think about this, one of the things that keeps coming up for me is the conversations that I have with my daughter. And she's 12, and, and so she's not yet at a point where she's got a fine point on all of these issues. But already, and I've mentioned this before on the show, walking home from Mass several years ago, she sort of looked up to me and she said, Papa, it occurs to me there are no women priests. And I said, that's correct. And that's been a point that she's been thinking about a lot. What are the options for her in this church and what is the church advertising to her as the option? And then as she has learned more about the history of the United States, particularly around race issues, and she's looked at the history of the church, particularly around its participation in some of those, she's found again and again, and she points this out to me, and it leads to interesting conversations when she points out, hey, Papa, why is the church always so bad about this? And I don't have a great answer for her. But I think that makes it difficult for families like mine where we're at. I mean, we have active conversations about faith a lot in our household, but they're not doctrinal conversations. They're honest, genuine, searching conversations. How can we be better Christians? How can the church be better at helping us be Christians? And I'll be honest with you, what we've seen over the last couple of years, just from this, the anecdotal evidence of our family, it hasn't given us robust reasons to want to go back. And I, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but I'll just, I'll, I'll say it in a little bit more detail. I wish that we had a pastor who had reached out to us 
at other points in my life, we have been in parishes where that would have been the case. But that's not the case here in our, you know, Southside Chicago parish. I, I wish that we had a church that we could look at and say, yeah, they're making reasonable decisions around Catholic schools and the safety of Catholic students, and they're making reasonable decisions around Catholic parishioners. But honestly, again and again, I've seen them instead push for a kind of make the parish great again kind of mentality. And I, I just got no interest in participating in that. And I've got no interest, honestly, in supporting that financially or otherwise with my butt in the chair or with the dollars in my pocket. And and I don't have an answer for this. I just got to say again to listeners, we're thinking about this a lot. It's not because we're just flying off the handle and going, forget the church. It's we really want to be engaged with the church. We really want to be part of this, but we're finding it increasingly difficult to do so. First, can I just say that she? Lo- I love that she calls you Papa. That's so. That seems so sweet. I have similar conversations with my kids too. My my last bit of hopefulness is just that I think the message of the gospel is truth, and it will shine through. So, no matter how much we try to screw it up as an institution, I think what we have is something that's valuable to people, and that will continue to be seen as valuable. That doesn't mean I'm not going to keep pushing to try to reform the institution that shares it with folks. But, but yeah, maybe COVID can be a wake up call for many of us to look very seriously at how quickly people are exiting, so that we can make some of those reforms. Well, with that. We're going to bring this conversation today to a close. Father Dan, Heidi, it's great to be with you again. And listeners, please be assured that regardless of our own particular sort of orientation to a particular parish at this particular moment, you are always particularly in our prayers, and we welcome yours as well. Thank you for being with us in this conversation today and for telling your friends about the show, and we'll be back again with you in a couple of weeks. Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout-out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.